Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Here we are on what I think is week five of the lockdown podcast. Joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Mustn't grumble, John. Mustn't grumble. That's good. I feel like grumbling a lot at the moment, but I'm trying not to. Um, what have you been up to this week? Uh, in a well, I say what you've been up to. Sitting at home, uh, what have you been writing about this week, Phil? Well, I've been writing about. Um, I know there's not many of them about at the moment, but I've been. I did write a piece for the magazine on um, comparing share buybacks, which are very popular and, and very popular with management teams. Mm, I wonder why. Uh, and uh, and special dividends. You know, thinking well. Should shareholders actually get special dividends instead? And I, uh, yeah, I had a look at Right Move, which likes to do share buybacks. And I, what what I did was um, just use use the cash that they bought back shares with, and actually just thought, well, I'll just leave the number of shares basically unchanged from five years ago, and then use the cash as a special dividend instead, and try and work out do a few adjustments to the share price and the dividends per share and all that kind of thing. And it was really fascinating because the returns, total shareholder returns, so the change in share price plus plus dividends received was almost identical. But how investors got those returns was was different. So under the buyback, 91% of their return from the 1st of January 2015 until last Thursday night 91% 91% of it came from share price. But if it had been special dividend, you had over a quarter of it would have come from dividends. And the interesting thing is I ran the numbers about an hour ago because Rightmove's share price has gone down a bit more. And it's actually getting closer and closer to a special dividend that would have made people better off. The, the work showed the buyback was slightly better because the share price had gone up so much. But... The cost of the shares, as as the share price approaches the average price of the that they've paid for the shares, and they've paid an average of about four pounds twenty over the last five years, and the current share price is about four pounds eighty, four pounds seventy five. So as that price comes down, it stacks up in favour of the dividend rather than the buyback. Now the management of Right Move have got a very favourable. Um, long-term incentive plan, which is linked to earnings per share growth, surprisingly, and um, also total shareholder return. But the biggest chunk of the weighting is on the earnings per share growth, and clearly the buyback helps with that. Explain, Phil, exactly how that helps. So why is it favourable to management who are remunerated through an EPS growth scheme to to favour buybacks? Basically because... The profits are spread over a, a fewer number of shares going forward, and you know you, I did the maths. So comparing a special dividend with a buyback, and even though Right Move has paid quite high prices for its buyback between 2015 and 2019, so at the end of 2019, earnings per share would have been about 10% higher under the buyback than under a special dividend, even paying quite high prices because they're, pe- they're paying cash, they're using their cash flow, they're not messing around with the finances and making things complicated that way. They're just paying out their surplus cash. So do management teams, do these, do these incentive programmes, do these incentive plans never uh, adjust for buybacks? I've yet to see one. I'm not saying they don't exist. Um, 
but generally they don't. But let, let's be let's be fair to Right Move. A lot of the growth in their earnings per share has come because the profits have grown. So management have, have done a decent job, but just juice that with buying back shares. The other thing as well they do is that, is that their earnings per share calculation ignores payments payments in shares, share-based payments, which for me is a bit naughty. So yeah, I mean, I looked at it by actually expensing shares as a proper cost, like wages, and did my analysis that way. But they ignore that in their earnings per share. So the more they pay themselves in shares, the more that doesn't matter. And I, I would grumble about that if I was a big shareholder. I mean, we don't, as you say, as you say, we don't, we don't, we're not seeing a lot of this at the moment because obviously a lot of companies have stopped any form of shareholder return, whether that be dividends or or buybacks. And it's not something we we ever really saw quite as much in the UK as we saw in the US. I mean, how much do you think buybacks have juiced earnings growth, uh, you know, across the board? I think the common consensus is by quite a lot, particularly in America. I didn't have the space to, to, to go into this, but I did have a look at this before I started writing. And if you go to, you know, some of the, the big tech shares um, in the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, you know, the Microsofts of this world, they have spent huge amounts of money. Apple, you know, spent huge amounts of money. And one of the interesting things, actually, is that even though these companies have supposedly got lots of cash on their balance sheets, What's actually happening is is that they're actually borrowing to do this. Part of the reason is that up until recently, a lot of a lot of the cash for these companies might have been overseas, and bringing it back to America would have led to a big tax bill. Um, that's changed a bit in the last year or so. But what's interesting is that the debt, the actual borrowings of these companies, has actually gone up. And um, the reason for that is because they can use the interest on the borrowings to um, pay less tax because the interest reduces your tax bill. That's another another thing. But, you know, there's been a lot of leverage. There's been a lot of borrowing in America to buy back shares. And I think the point to get across with, with buybacks is yeah, sometimes they can work. They do allow you to pay out the, the profit. Your profits don't change, okay? The operating profits don't change. The, the business earns the same amount of money regardless. But you see, what it what it can do is it can allow you to pay more to each shareholder, either in terms of their earnings, dividends, free cash flow. But it doesn't doesn't necessarily make the shareholders better off if you pay too much for the shares. And if you overpay for the shares, um, you know, you're actually, even though you're increasing the earnings per share, you're actually getting a very low return on 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 that purchase. And I wrote about this in the Investors Chronicle just over a year ago, and I used the approach of Next. Next does this thing called the equivalent rate of return. So it looks at the amount of money that it uses to buy back shares, and then it works out what increase in profit it would need to get the same boost in earnings per share. And it works out what the equivalent rate of return of buying back the shares is. The more expensive the company's shares are, sort of the higher PE ratio, just to keep it simple, the lower the return on that money. And so Next had a threshold and it says, look, unless we can get an 8% return on our buyback, we're going to pay a special dividend instead. And I, I, I think that that approach, I mean, Next is a, is a shiny example in so many things uh, in terms of company reporting. 
But I think the way that um, it explained the rationale and the reason between paying special dividend and playing a buyback is is just really, really good. Um, I'm trying to think what year's annual report it was. It might have been 2013 or 2015, but it's, to me, they've got it bang on. Next is a financially disciplined company, as you say, managed, managed very well uh, over the years. Um, by, by the same guy as well. There is a consistency behind what, what it does. But, you know, it's felt like buybacks have been just a, you know, the go-to uh, financial uh, engineering of choice for so many management teams, regardless of the quality of the business behind it. You talk about right move, actually, you know, it's a growth company and it generates growth. This just juices a little, a little bit more. It seemed like, particularly in the US, a lot of companies that weren't generating growth were creating it out of this, this kind of financial engineering. Yeah, I think it um, sends a bad signal, um, a bad message. And I think, you know, the other thing that, you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of the, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of the sort of, I mean, it is verging on anger now. Um, <laughs> your what, your what, anger, Phil. Going, I would say I was measured, John. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I mean, I, I, mean, I think a lot of people are fed up with some of the stuff that they see, see going on. Mainly, mainly on the American market, less so, less so in in this country. And I think they just want to see something that they they perceive perceive to be fair. And this is the one of the big gripes I've got against share buybacks is that they don't treat all shareholders fairly. You know, how often have we seen the the statement in an in an earnings release where it says, "And we intend to return X amount of cash by way of share buyback." to our shareholders. And you're thinking, hold on a minute, what does that actually mean for me as a shareholder? Because, okay, it's usually the big institutions who tender their shares and, you know, and they get and the company buys the shares back off them. Let's look at this really simplistically. They could have just sold their shares in the market anyway to realise that cash. And if we go back to basics, the only way that you get a return from owning a share that's listed on the stock exchange is from a rising share price or a dividend. So for the buyback to work for you, you've either got to get a bigger dividend than than you would have done, or the share price has got to go up and be higher than the price that the company paid them back, sorry, bought them back. But you see, the thing about a dividend is that everyone gets one. Everyone gets the same amount per share. So it treats everybody fairly, but but more importantly than that, it's a return, a tangible return on your ownership of a share that once it's been paid, cannot be taken away. Now, what we may begin to see, or we may see, is that a lot of these companies that have bought back shares at very high prices could well be in a position if, whenever, when if their share prices start to fall, that those, that, that money, money look like money that's been very badly spent and the shareholder really hasn't benefited from it at all. Whereas had they been pocketed the dividend that would have been a return that couldn't have been taken away from them. It has felt at times like a tool, a tool for, for management to, uh, to do well rather than shareholders. A buyback does not make a business better in its own right. doesn't change the amount of profits the business makes. You know, the, the trading assets and the business, you know, the trading profits 
And therefore, you have to argue, does it change the value of the business? No, it doesn't. Well, it, it doesn't. And you think about why the buyback's happening. You know, I mean, the argument has always been that it's because there is no better way to use the, the, uh, the excess cash than to buy back the shares or to redistribute the money to shareholders. If that's the case, then why are executives paid so much for not knowing what to do with the money that their company has generated? That is something that bothers me a great deal. It's a question that I don't think they've fully answered. That's a very good point. And I think the other thing as well is, is that there are other things that companies can do with their cash flows. I mean, Rightmove can't really do anything else with it. I mean, it hasn't got any debt. It hasn't really got, you know, a big pension fund issue. But, you know, companies could pay off debt. Companies could pay off, pay money into the pension scheme, um, do something for their employees. No. And actually, the, sh- the shareholders actually would benefit because, because, the value of the equity would go up because the li- you're paying off the liability. So that actually would be would be a good thing to do. Shareholders should actually work, and Tesco are doing this actually. Tesco are paying off their pension fund deficit with the proceeds of the sale of their Asian business. They're returning some money as well, aren't they, through the uh, through a special dividend? Yeah, they're paying five billion or just over fifty p a share special dividend, not to buy back a special dividend. Even though, you know, Tesco's valuation, you could probably say that, you know, they could do a big earnings per share enhancement. But no, they're paying a special dividend and good on them for doing that. But they're using also the rest of the money or most of the rest of the money to basically pay off the pension fund deficit or pay off the deficit what it was, what it is today. I've no idea. And, and that, would, that would be a good thing. But you see, a lot of companies have been worse than that. They've actually taken on debt to buy back shares. And there's a lot of consultant, financial consultants out there, academics, who have peddled this argument for years that there is an optimal level of debt that can go on a company's balance sheet because debt is a tax-deductible expense. If you have more debt, you pay less tax, and actually the cash flows to the business increase and therefore the value of the business goes up this is absolute hogwash in my opinion because what actually happens is that the shareholder is having to support higher levels of debt and therefore the risk to the shareholders have increased and really they that will actually raise you know the higher risk they want a higher return and therefore if you start to get bogged down in valuation it makes no difference in fact it can actually make the shareholders poorer especially when you get to a situation like this and people are pouring over company finance, company balance sheets, and thinking, that company's got a bit too much debt. Which is interesting because because the job of the management team primarily is to uh, look after the interests of the shareholders in that company. So buybacks might look like they're doing that in good times. But actually, the, the long-term effect through through bear markets could be that actually those buybacks, as you say, make shareholders worse off. Management haven't done their job. They haven't fulfilled their responsibility to shareholders. Could that come back to bite them? You would, you would kind of hope it does. I, I also wonder, you know, during times like this, whether this whole, this, this agenda of, quote, shareholder value, unquote, that seems to have dominated business thinking, for the, you know, the last generation, just needs to be ripped up. I wonder, Phil, if a lot of things actually need ripping up yeah, so I got to, you started reading your Alpha report and I got to the first uh, subhead, crony capitalism is alive and thriving. And I, and I got a little bit depressed thinking about that. And I did plough on, um, 
but yeah, I, I you kind of look at the financial system and and the weaknesses in it, and and it is because of this. It is because management teams have been able to get away with uh, systems that have rewarded them. Uh, shareholder value is a, is a flawed system. Um, you know, the, 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 what we're seeing this week about you know companies able to to kind of raise money and circumvent their private shareholders who are who are you know have no choice but to be diluted. You know, this is a bad system. It feels like we need to kind of have, you know use this situation to kind of fix a lot of things. Yeah, I, I apologise to the. That's all right. Impend, impending readers of of my alpha report, but I just. It's a good read, Phil. I it's did, a, it's a good read. I did, I did go off on one, <laughs> and uh, because I'm finding it, I'm finding it quite hard, really. You, you, you look at. I mean, I have to say, this isn't mainly an American problem. But as we all know, what happens in in America often impacts us as well. You know, you get a situation where, you know, the economic outlook is not good. And that's an understatement. You know, an hour ago, we saw another five and a quarter million Americans file for job, you know, jobless claims. We've also had some terrible numbers this week uh, from some of the forecasting organisations, the OBR, the IMF, have all come out and, and, and really put some uh, meat on the scale of the recession we face. There's been some terrible uh, retail figures in the US, uh, auto sales figures. It, I think it's starting to hit home, the, the, the extent of this, this, this recession that we face. I agree, and I, I think that you know, we have. You mentioned, you know, auto figures. You know, we, we had the UK new car sales figures. You know, in March, which is the number plate change change uh, date, down forty five percent year on year. Now, admittedly, you know, probably dealers can't sell cars at the moment. But you know, I, I think I've seen one twenty registration in the last six weeks. You know, you, again, we've seen you know twenty two million Americans have lost have lost their jobs. I mean, more than that, 22 million Americans have, have, uh, have filed jobless claims. That doesn't include people who are self-employed, working the gig economy. That People don't seem to understand, or what the stock market doesn't seem to understand. That's 22 million people who are going to have less money in their pockets to buy the goods and services of these shares on the stock exchange. I saw an amazing, I mean, this kind of wraps up both this this horrible uh, employment, unemployment situation and cars. Uh, it was a picture from Los Angeles of a food bank, which was obviously drive through it being America. And you've got people rocking up to a food bank in $30,000 cars. Yeah. And that kind of, it just painted a picture for me. It feels like excess. It feels like something's wrong here. And we've talked about this before in terms of cars. We have. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I just think that there's, a, there's just a fundamental disconnect between the financial markets and the real world. And, you know, economics can be made overly complicated. And you know me, John, I'm a bit of a simpleton. I like to sort of... I wouldn't say simpleton, Phil. Simpleton is the wrong word. You, you, perhaps you have sort of you have a simple view, and I think that's a yeah, different maybe. thing. <laughs> but, econ- but economics is it's all about linkages. It's all about how one thing affects something else, which affects something else, and you get lots of like chain reactions. So I don't buy something off your business, which means that you can't buy something, and that kind of thing. And whilst everybody hopes this is temporary. The reduction in spending power in the economy is significant. 
you know, I think what I think the OBR, the OBR came out and said thirty-five percent decline in economic output in this, between March and June is what they expect. But then they went on to say, oh well, actually, we expect the next three months it'll all get back to normal, and we'll get about best part of three hundred billion pounds of extra borrowing by the government, and then from next year everything will reset, and what the government came out in the budget earlier this year. That kind of spending and borrowing, it'll be exactly the same as that. And I thought, well, there are a lot of clever people who work in the OBR, and I don't envy them their tasks, but that just didn't seem to didn't seem to sit with me because I mean, and that was their best case scenario. So I'm looking at there's a graph in your Alpha report, which is the uh, it's the real GDP forecast put together by the OBR and the ONS, and it's it's a it's a it's a very sharp drop in a V-shaped recovery. Yeah. And, and and this is the, the shape of this recovery has been something that's been discussed quite a lot recently. Neil Wilson, our market commentator, discussed this recently. It, will it be V? Will it be U? Will there be a second wave and we'll get a W? I, this all sounds so familiar. I remember this after the financial crisis. But V seems hope, hopelessly optimistic from where I sit locked in my house today. I agree. I think there's a, a lot of wishful thinking there, sadly. You know, things will come back, but, you know... Trying to say that, you know, everything's going to be all right is a bit like coming home and finding a 10-ton truck's gone through your front, front window and hoping that everything will be all right in the morning. They will, that damage is being done, and mm. damage is going to take some time to be repaired. My brother, as it happens, runs, uh, he runs a catering business. So here's a, here's a little real-life example. He, uh, he said to me the other day, yeah, you know, I've got my, you know we, had a good, we had a good winter. We made a bit of money, did a lot of functions. All great, but obviously you have to shut down now. And he said his big worry is that the lockdown may be lifted, but later in the year, uh, when they would have hoped to get some of their revenues back through through the functions that have been deferred, actually elements of the lockdown remain in place. So there may there may be uh, a decision taken that we limit the size of get of social gatherings, and then his business doesn't come back, and that's what he's planning for. My another, another mate is a plumber, a local, you know, and he, he runs a local business. He says, how's your business? He said, it's done. It's done. Uh, I've, I've shut it down. So, there, you know, there you go. Two businesses shut down. Entrepreneurs. Yeah, this is, and this is people, you know, people, businesses are spending less money. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the key to this, and everyone's an expert on this, aren't they? Everyone's an expert on viruses now. And it's like, you know, unless you... Unless you get rid of the virus with a vaccine or extreme, almost like quarantine-like conditions, it's not going to go away. Mm. And I totally understand why governments and businesses want to open up. But the danger is that this, this virus just hangs around and you don't get rid of it. You open up, everything opens up again and you get an acceleration in the infection rate again. And if you, it's interesting, I'm reading a book at the moment about the 1918 Spanish flu. That came in three waves. And it was the second wave that was the worst one. And let's hope, let's hope we can get rid of this. You know, it's, but the, the risk there, the risk is that, you know, people talking about a vaccine and some people are behaving like a vaccine is a done deal. And it isn't. I saw a very good, you know, very interesting comment on Twitter by, by an investor I private investor, I won't, I won't embarrass that person, but he made a very decent, 
very reasonable point. He said, look, people are going to be wary of crowds for a long time. Um, you know, things like football matches, cinemas, restaurants, pubs, travel, you know, airlines. If this thing hasn't gone away, then yes, you may be able to open up bits of the economy again and we can get some money flowing back into the economy again, which is, you know, what we all want. But it's not gonna it's not gonna come back quickly. And that you know, that's that's the worry. And I think, you know, some share prices reflect that. A lot of them don't. You talk about travel shares in your Alpha report this week. Travel and leisure. Yeah. When I was compiling the rises and fallers table for the magazine this week, there were some big rises from the travel sector. Big, big jump. As though, as you say, you know, a virus, uh, the virus can be beaten, a vaccine is, is on the way. My understanding, by the way, of, of, of when a vaccine is likely to happen is I think some of the big groups are talking about Q1 2021. So, so there's the timescale, realistically, for a, for a vaccine. And that it might, even that may be too generous, uh, too optimistic. So, yeah, these travel shares are bouncing as though we were going to be going on a holiday in autumn. I can't see it happening. Oh, actually, I, this is the area of the market, the UK stock market, that probably interests me the most right now, um, in a positive way. OK, that's counterintuitive, given what we've just been talking about. Yeah, yeah, but don't get me wrong, you know, things are bleak. But look at, look at the share prices and valuations of some of these shares. There's actually some realism, even though they've bounced, there's still some sort of realism and risk priced into these shares. And, you know, assuming that these these companies get back, and let, let's say, I think, you know, fingers crossed, that's not an unreasonable working assumption that we do one day get back to reasonable times again. We might be able to have our Christmas quiz. Yeah. But, you know, National Express four weeks ago was priced to go bust. Mm. You know, it was it was trading on, I think, less than three times trailing earnings. And this is a company whose earnings were were gonna go up, were expected to go up in twenty twenty. And this is this is a company that makes a lot of its money taking kids to school in America and also bussing people around in Spain. And it has a lot of income that is contract backed. And it put out a statement, I think, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, and actually was pretty good um, in terms of reassuring investors that this business is going to survive. You know, the school bus the school bus is getting 60% of its pre-COVID revenues. Spanish business has got a lot. Spanish government has said, look, some of these contracts you've got, you can have them for a bit longer than we said you could, and you can get the money back when things come back. So this is a company that's not going to go bust. Looks like it's not going to go bust. And it still trades on seven times last year's earnings. Now, if we take a, take a view that this company's probably not going to raise equity, but it will come back with a bit more debt. But if you can then reset expectations that it can earn something similar to what it earned last year, I don't know, in 2021 or whatever, this share looks really cheap to me. Now, the, the interesting thing is that if you look at what's driven the bull market or one of the bull markets over the last 10, 11 years, it's been this flight to quality. And that flight to quality has actually been accelerated in the downturn. People flock to, just as people flock to these so-called dependable earners in 2008, 2009, and then we had a big bull market for the next 10 years in these so-called bond proxies or quality shares. These companies have actually held up better than most but they're also but everybody wants them 
the, the crowd has converged on these and the prices, the valuations of these shares are now really expensive, which means that even though they are fabulous businesses in many cases, it doesn't really make sense for investors to go out and buy them. Because because the valuations are too high. Investors are buying them, though. You know, quality at any price. Yeah, and that was happening before all this happened. And I come back to you know, go back, come back to some of these travel travel shares. You know, we've talked about W. H. Smith a lot, but you know, National Express. You know, can it is, is this going to be able to grow its earnings over the next five ten years? The answer is probably yes. And you can pay seven times earnings for that. Mm. You know, Whitbread. You know, I know it's struggling, but, you know, it's on about 10 times last year's earnings. Now, those earnings have been shot to bits, but if they come back, um, you know, it's maybe not a great example because the UK market was getting a bit tough, but you've got a fantastic brand there, a lot of it freehold, and you don't need any growth. You, don't need, you only need it to return, really, return to what it was, and it actually could be a good investment. So what should we be looking for when we're, when we're looking at these kind of recovery companies, though? Just the ability to survive a certain amount of months of, of no trading, strength in the balance sheet? Yes, you look at that and you, and you take that. But then you've got to say, look, are these businesses selling products and producing goods that people will go back and buy or use? And the answer in, in some of these cases is yes, they will. Mm. You know, American parents will still want to put their kids on the school bus. Yeah, I have to say, British journalists still want to go out for a very large drink at the end of all of this. So <laughs> I can see all the, all the money I'm not spending right now is definitely going to be spent in a pub at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, I mean... Certainly but, a lot of it will. Yeah, yeah. Things, things will come back. Mm. I, think, you know, I think you're going to have to expect more placings. I think the caveat with looking at sort of historic earnings and using that as a base is that some of these companies are going to have to raise, are going to have to issue more shares to raise more money, and that's going to happen at the expense of private shareholders. We're going to get a little bit more diluted. So, so that, uh, you know, and and there's there's no guarantee that the markets won't weaken again. We we saw a bit of a wobble yesterday on some of those those economic forecasts that we saw. So, I mean, you know, it's. I think I think it's it's not a bad idea to be looking out for uh, for buying opportunities, but but I wouldn't actually say that now is the turning point. But this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time for investors to take a step back. Don't even think about buying stuff, but use it. Use it as a way to learn. I, I put a tweet out this morning saying to people, look, some of the statements that, that we're getting from these companies are immensely valuable. Some, some of them are going into great detail about how bits of their business work, how, how their revenues, where their revenues come from, what's their cost by. I mean, EasyJet, think what you like about EasyJet as an investor, but the company gave a great statement, you know, about what its cash burn was, what its operating costs were with no, no planes in the sky and with a full, full lot of planes in the sky. It told people who didn't know before that it wasn't locked into buying fuel, something called a take or pay contract. So it hasn't agreed to buy fuel regardless and, and things like that. And it gave a very detailed and in many ways, very reassuring amount of information to people. And one, one of the things I always say is that if you're looking for a share that you, you intend to hopefully make money from over the long run, then spend a lot of your time understanding how it how it behaves in a downturn because 
that will basically tell you how resilient a business is. It'll tell you how it works. Things that management say today will not be said under any, any other types of circumstance. So you, you can actually learn a lot more about businesses in situations like this, which will put you in very good stead for when you press the buy on your computer mouse in months to come. So, you know, there's some, it's, this, this, is, this is a good time for investors. To, I mean, it's always a good time for investors to learn. But I think now there's some really interesting stuff coming out. I think you should lap it up. It sounds like the subject of your uh, of a future column. I'm not sure I could. Uh, well, maybe it is. I it mean, is it's part of what I go on about all the time. Yeah, if you if you're able to look under the bonnet even more than you usually can, then this is this is exactly your your bread and butter. Um, but in the meantime, you could uh, if listeners could go and read some of your previous columns, which kind of tell you how to interpret some of the information that uh, that's being put out there. But um, anyway, thank you very much, Phil. That was, uh, that was cheerier than I expected it to be in the end. That was good. Um, speak to you next week. Have a, have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Okay, let me just quickly talk you through what else we've got in this week's magazine. Our private investor diarist, John Rosier, surveys the damage to his portfolio. But it's fair to say he's a bit more bullish than Phil. He's now fully invested and explains why. There's some great stuff in the PF and fund section, including a look at how you can assess your risk appetite and investment trust ideas to beat the dividend drought. You can hear more about that on their podcast, which we'll be recording shortly. Mr. Bearable is also looking at dividend sustainability, along with the usual comment from Chris, Simon, Michael Taylor, and of course, Phil. Unsurprisingly, it's a bumper news section, once again, largely focused on the impact of COVID-19. And we even have a few results back in the mag, some of which are actually surprisingly decent, not least Tesco, as we've discussed already on this podcast. And of course, we have the lead feature, which is looking in detail at ESG, which before the crisis was all anyone seemed to be interested in, but which, like many things, has been somewhat put to one side for now. However, as James Norrington explains, we think ESG's healing power could be the key to rebuilding wealth in the years ahead. And I'm sure we, we will be revisiting it lots. Thanks again, Phil. Thank you all for listening. Pick up the mag in all good news agents or supermarkets if you can get to them. Speak next week and stay safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.